Believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. I'm Brent. And so, Ryan, we're back. We're back. So um, let's let's talk about real quickly what we did during this little break. Um, I I took a trip to Philadelphia. My sister lives uh, outside of Philadelphia. We we stayed with her and in this lovely new house that she has and hung out with um, my kids have cousins that are the same age and we had a good time and then we hung out in Philadelphia for a couple few days and we we visited this place called the Mutter Museum. Mutter? Mutter? I think it's Mutter. There's an there's an umlaut hmm. on it. But um, so this is a place that's run by the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Oh, it yeah. features medical specimens and and um, horrific looking medical tools and weird cysts and tumors and freaky two headed embryonic things floating in jars. And Just the kind of place you want to bring your kids. <laughs> yes. It freaked my my younger son out quite a bit, um, which I felt bad about. But. There are one of the things that so Chang and Aang, the a cast of them is there. Oh, um, cool! As well as drawers full of thousands of objects that have been pulled from people's throats, which oh, was insane. Like there's a ton of safety pins open, which I don't know how you do that, but it happens a lot. So I don't know. It, it was it was a, a cool experience. I it's like it's like Mary Poppins pulling things out of her bag. It's very, very weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. This reminds me, uh, we we actually went to a place in Boston uh, at Harvard where Harvard also has a a medical museum like that. Uh, And there were several, you know, um, you know, the guy who who had the uh, the rod go through his skull and survived. You know, I think that's a really good Ripley story, too. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A cast of that was there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other things we were able to do over the break is we were able to go down and visit uh, Ripley's HQ mm-hmm. uh, in Orlando uh, in two huge warehouses just full of amazing uh, but true um, uh, artifacts and and uh, and and what else? What were you most impressed with down there? Well, we got the opportunity to um, actually hold in our hands a few items such as um, the hoverboard from Back to the Future. Um, so cool. The original lightsaber from Empire Strikes Back and uh, Han Solo's blaster. Um, Indy's bullwhip. Indy's bullwhip. That was really cool. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we got to see the uh, dress that Marilyn Monroe wore when she sang to JFK. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was probably the highlight of uh, my break going down there. Oh, of course, Ripley's related. Yeah, that was a, that was a crazy tour. Um, um, lots of like torture devices from the Victorian era. Right. I think they have the world's largest collection of penis sheaths. Is that right? I believe you're right. Yeah. By the way, trademark, our new band will be called Penis Sheaths. Penis Sheath or just Sheath. All those are good. <laughs> so, so one thing that I've been thinking about um, since we chose the topic of this episode is when I was in Philadelphia, I tried to imagine telling my kids 
that we were never going home. Like maybe sitting in our hotel room, turning to them and saying, boys, we're going to stay in this city now and, and we can't go back. And we, I'm sorry, we can't say goodbye to your friends or your teachers or anyone else. And I, I can't tell you why. Maybe when you're older, I'll tell you why. Um, what do you think? How, how do you think that would affect your children? I mean, first off, I know my daughter would not accept that answer. I mean, can you even imagine that? Like today's kids, my daughter would be like, what? No, you're yeah. going to tell me exactly why. Yeah. Uh, I had a birthday party I was supposed to go to tomorrow and uh, we're going to be there. And uh, so what gives? So the reason I'm thinking about all this is because that's exactly what happened to our guest, Pauline Dakin, when she was just seven years old. Um, pretty much from that age forward, Pauline and her family's life became full of secrets and riddled with bizarre events that Pauline's mom refused to explain until Pauline was 23 years old. And then, when Pauline was let in on the secrets, secrets that involved the family being hunted and a priest named Stan Sears and a covert government agency that tried to protect them, things only got stranger. It was a huge discovery. It, it you know, it was a likely answer to this terrible mystery of, you know, what was it that hijacked our lives and turned them upside down? Today, Pauline Dakin is a journalism professor who lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. But at the age of five, she was living in Vancouver with her mom and her little brother. Pauline's dad, Warren, was a businessman and an abusive alcoholic, a condition that led to Ruth divorcing him when Pauline was seven years old. After that, as Pauline tells it, the mysterious behaviors began. That is when life started to become frightening. And that is when Pauline's family met a local priest named Stan Sears. As a little child, uh, you know, I, I guess I thought I had a fairly normal family. Uh, mom, dad, younger brother. Um, when I was five, my parents separated and uh, they eventually divorced when I was seven and my brother was five. Um, and my brother and I always knew that there was a lot of conflict between our parents um, after that divorce and, and a lot of legal wrangling. Uh, we also knew there were a lot of strange things going on that we couldn't really explain. Um, just um, a constant sense of something um, difficult or something frightening going on. Uh, we always assumed that had something to do uh, with our parents, um, the, the breakdown of their marriage, uh, and the fact that my dad was alcoholic and he uh it was a World War II veteran who came home uh, from the war with a drinking problem that got steadily worse. After my mother and father split up, and we were living still in North Vancouver, um, we began to go to a new church. Um, and I remember the first time I met Stan Sears, the minister there. Uh, it was after church, and he and Mom were talking. It was We were all outside as people were leaving. They were just uh, talking. And Mom introduced me to him. And, uh, and Ted was introduced. My little brother was introduced to him, too. And, and I noticed how he knelt right down to talk to Ted in particular and, and, um, and to me. 
And, you know, he just seemed like a guy who was kind of full of mischief and fun, uh, very, very warm. Um, and I immediately liked him. And uh, from that point on, uh, fa several families in the church would go to a church camp sometimes called Paradise Valley. And so he would be up there. He was on the board of, of this camp and we got to know him better. Uh, what I learned many years later was that he had met my mom or my mom had met him uh, because she had been going to... Uh, Al-Anon, the support group for the partners or the families of alcoholics. And, and while she was there, some people recognized that she was really struggling uh, with depression and, you know, all the stress of what was happening at home. And they suggested that she go to see this counselor named Stan Sears, who was well known through AA and Al-Anon as a, a family counselor where there was alcohol involved. And so my mom had gone to see him and they'd, she'd been in counseling with him for about six months. Um, and so what eventually happened was, you know, after um, a while she needed to get a job and it turned out there was a job at the church. So she ended up working as the church secretary. So again, our lives can, were increasingly getting closer and closer with Stan and Sybil Sears. We became close family friends. We would spend, you know, Thanksgiving dinners together or go on vacation or camping together. So yeah, they became quite close. So when we ended up in Winnipeg and they were there, well, it seemed kind of strange, but in another way, you know, they were close. They were like family. So if you caught that, Pauline said, when we ended up in Winnipeg and they were there, it seemed kind of strange. When Pauline was seven, the mom packed up the family car and took the kids on a vacation to Winnipeg, a thousand miles away from Vancouver. And yes, oddly, or maybe just interestingly, Stan and his wife, Sybil, were coming too. And oh, one more thing, they were never going home. Um, the year that I was in grade four, um, we were living in North Vancouver. Um, we were um, excited because we were going to go on vacation back to the prairies where my mom was from. She was from Saskatchewan um, and we were going to go back uh, to Saskatchewan and Manitoba and visit her family members. Um, we were going to be camping. We were going to be going with our close family friends, Stan and Sybil Sears, who were a lot of fun. And um, we were, you know, taking our time camping and, and going across the country. And we arrived in Winnipeg and we stayed at the home of an old friend of my mom's. Um, and by this time, it was probably early to mid-August. Um, and one night I couldn't sleep and I went downstairs and mom was in the kitchen and I said, oh, I can't sleep. And so she made me a cup of cocoa and then she began to tell me, she, you know, she said, I have to tell you something and uh, we're not going to be going home. I, I'm going to, I'm, you know, we're going to have a new life here. And I I couldn't believe what I was hearing, you know, I was thinking about my friends and my teacher and my dad and, you know, all the people that were left in, in Vancouver and, you know, why I wanted to know why. And she just said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Uh, someday when you're older, I'll tell you, but this is the right move for our family right now. 
you know, for context, I should probably give, I give you a, another piece of information. Um, on that trip, we were traveling with Stan and Sybil Sears. And uh, the night that I learned uh, that we were not going to be going home again, um, I uh, also learned that Stan had a new job in Winnipeg. So they were also going to be living in Winnipeg. Uh, he had left the church in Vancouver uh, to come to a new church. He was a minister and he was going to take up a new church in Winnipeg. Um, so at that point, it appeared that our lives were kind of woven together now. Then, four years later, it happened again. Another sudden move, without warning and without explanation. So we stayed in Winnipeg for a few years, and then uh, one day our mom said, you know, we, uh, I need to tell you something, um, and, and we're going to move again. We're going to St. John, New Brunswick. And Stan Sears had, was moving to a new church there. And so we were going to go along. And it, but we were told that this was a secret, that we could not talk about it. We couldn't tell anybody that we were moving. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly don't tell anybody back on the West Coast. Don't tell our dad or our aunts or relatives. Um, and again, you know, we wanted to know why. Why would we do this? And the answer was, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Someday when you're older, I'll be able to tell you what's going on. So we knew something dire was happening. We just had no idea what it was. It was during these years that Ruth began to exhibit other strange and abrupt behaviors, making demands that made little sense, like ordering her kids to wear plastic bags around their feet while inside the house, or Ruth throwing out every item of food from the refrigerator and the cupboards. And there were there were other strange things that had been going on, particularly during the time we were in Winnipeg, where, you know, my brother and I would come down for breakfast in the morning before school, and mom would be packing a picnic basket and saying, Hey, we're not going to school and work today. We're going to, you know, Portage La Prairie, a little town an hour away. Um, and we're going to have a picnic and go bowling today, which, you know, hey, that's great, but it's a little odd. And, uh, you know, sometimes there'd be important things going on in school that I didn't want to miss. And it was like, well, I'm sorry, this is the plan today. So that happened. That kind of thing happened a few times. Slowly things began to settle down after the family moved to New Brunswick. There were still the occasional odd behaviors by Ruth, who would also pack up and leave the kids alone for days at a time, saying that she was going to a retreat center or on a quick vacation. But the frequency of Ruth's strange behaviors slowed way down. Yet, something was clearly wrong, and as Pauline got older and progressed through high school, she couldn't let it go. I never stopped wondering what was going on with our family. Even once the strange things stopped happening so much, everything was always a secret. And mom would always say, please don't talk about where we're going, what we're doing. You know, if we went out for dinner, if, if we were on vacation, I, we were just never to talk to anybody about the movements or the activities of our family and specifically around, you know, of her movements or activity. So it was always a very secretive atmosphere. So, yeah, I just, you know, I remember as a teenager raging, what's wrong with this family and why is everything always such a big secret? And, you know, what's wrong with us? Um, so that never left. The answer to 
all of our questions was always, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Someday I'll be able to tell you. Years go by. Pauline graduates college and at the age of 23 starts working at a local newspaper. And then, one day, the phone rings. It's Ruth and she wants to talk. So finally, one day, when I was working at the newspaper, my phone rang and it was my mom. And she said, okay, you always wanted to know what's going on and now it's time. So would you come and meet me? Um, She was, you know, at school in the next province over. And so we agreed that we would meet sort of, not halfway, but at a motel along the highway in between the two cities where we were living. And so I, after work on a Friday, got my car and and drove to this little town called Sussex. and there was a, a gas station along the highway, and I pulled in there to meet where she told me to meet her. Uh, and she was there waiting for me. And I got out of my car, and I got into her car, and I gave her a hug. And I knew something really, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty uh, built up about, oh, I'm going to learn, the, you know, what's behind all our crazy behavior. Uh, but she was very tense. And she passed me an envelope with a note in it that said, take off all your jewelry and put it in this envelope. Don't speak uh, until we get where we're going. I'll explain. And so I was just horrified. What does this crazy behavior mean? Uh, but it was my mom, uh, you know, who, and my mom had always been reliable, trustworthy, the one person who was always there for me. So I, I did what she said. And uh, we drove just a short distance to this motel. Um, And we got out and she had a key and we went into a room. And I'm looking to see what's going on here. And the door opens and there's Stan Sears. Um, And so I walked into the room and... I was, I felt very emotional to see Stan, who, you know, kind of had just disappeared. And um, we sat down and mom made tea and, and then they began to tell me this unbelievable, crazy story. You know, Ryan, wait, do you, I don't know, do you really, do you want to listen to this? Should we just, should we do something else? I kind of, I don't know, I kind of think sometimes there's more fun in not knowing yeah. You know? Let's end it there. Okay. We'll just stop. Uh, so uh, this brings us to the or not portion of the show. <laughs> no, wait. Forget it. Let's keep going. So what they said was that uh, the reason we had had to, you know, move away, essentially disappear and walk away from our lives twice was that we had been on the run from the mafia, the mob, or organized crime. Um, and it was a very complicated, I guess, complex explanation uh, that had something to do with the fact that Stan had can- counseled a man who had come to him because he was alcoholic. And it turned out that he worked with organized crime on the waterfront in Vancouver. Um, and of course, you know, the big rule with organized crime is that you don't talk. And so uh, his bosses found out that he was talking. Um, This was uh, uh, perceived as a threat. They felt that he was probably telling Stan things he shouldn't. And so they assassinated him. And then they came after Stan. Stan had, 
you know, said he had been attacked outside the church. Um, he, there had been people around who had saved him uh, from this attacker, um, who turned out later to be working with an anti-organized crime task force. Um, and then, of course, my question is, well, that okay, fine, but why, why me and Ted and Mom? I mean, how could we possibly be caught up in this? And um, the answer to that was that my dad was involved in organized crime. And uh, when they saw my mother now working at the same church with this guy who now presumably knows too much because of what the guy he counseled had told him, they saw this as a threat and figured that they were maybe working together to, um, you know, tell authorities about what they were up to or something. Uh, so it was it was a complicated explanation that sort of tied in lots of threads. And still, it was just crazy. This is a crazy thing. The one thing I think about when I hear this is that I, I just think she's very identifiable. I mean, I think all of us would have probably felt torn in the same way, where we have somebody who we've trusted and and who's been there for us our whole lives is telling us an unbelievable story you love these people and you want to believe it but you, there's also got to be a little bit of nagging doubt you know especially for somebody who's a, a, a trained journalist to to be a skeptic about things this is uh almost too unbelievable to, to swallow. Well, she goes back and forth, um, and you can hear a little bit in our conversation. She goes back and forth between saying, you know, I, I, I believed it, but I didn't believe it. I, I had to believe it, but I couldn't believe it. Uh, and for those very reasons, like the, that's her mother. I, I could see myself reacting the exact same way. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that um, I should point out, so when she says that she had to, she got the note from her mom to take off all of her jewelry and not to talk, and, and everybody probably has guessed why, but the reason for that was because um, her mom thought that there was a good chance that um, somebody had snuck into Pauline's um, apartment and bugged all of her jewelry. But as crazy as the entire story was, it did, in a bizarre way, explain some things. You know, they were trying to, I guess, convince me and put the puzzle pieces together for me. And they said, hey, remember that time? that, you know, your mom was pulling all the food out of the fridge. Well, that was the time that we got word that somebody had tried to poison her and all the food had to go. Do you remember the time you came home from school and we had to rush you out the door and we told you that the furnace was malfunctioning? Well, that was a time that, that uh, we learned that there were people coming after us and we had to get out of there. Um, and so they began to say, remember all these crazy things. Well, this is what was really going on. And in a strange way, it was at least some explanation for all of this otherwise unexplainable behavior that had happened for so many years. I remember thinking, this, this can't be true, but how can these two people who are the most reliable people in my life, why would they lie to me? And, you know, these are... These are people with responsible jobs in the community. My mother ran uh, two daycare centers. Uh, my uh, Stan, you know, was a minister and a counselor. And, you know, they were both so well-respected and loved in the community. And 
you know, if, if they're crazy and lying, how could they ever have managed to live a, you know, a normal life? How, you know, how can this, how can this not be true? How can it be true? How can it not be true? Um, and so I remember thinking, I, you know, I guess for the moment, I just have to believe what they're saying because they are the people that I most love and trust in the world. So part of the story that Pauline was told in the motel room that weekend was about a shadowy, anti-organized crime task force. And Stan said that the task force was an initiative of the Canadian government's Privy Council to deal with what was seen as a growing problem with organized crime in the country. So Stan explained that organized crime was seen as a true domestic threat to security and that the people who had saved Stan the night he was attacked outside the church were working with this task force and ultimately that they had recruited Stan to work with them. And now it was time for Pauline to know about their world. Eventually, what I was told about this, they called it, it was kind of their joke, the weird world. You know, they understood that this was a crazy story. And, and um, they, they said that there was um, sort of an alternative prison system. So for people who were involved with organized crime, they didn't go through the regular court system. They went through a military tribunal to be tried. And if they were found guilty, then they were sent to this uh, kind of hidden penal system, which had small communities across the country. Um, and it was a hidden, secretive place uh, for these, these people who had committed terrible atrocities for organized crime. And, and that also in these communities were people, you know, the staff members who worked there. So, it, you know, it was this whole other world uh, that was secretive and hidden and known only to certain people in the military, certain people in the Privy Council, um, which is, you know, the prime minister in his cabinet. Um, and yeah, it, it was an unbelievable story. Pauline learned that one of the reasons her mom finally told her the truth behind the strange events throughout their lives was that Pauline's mother had decided she was going to, as she described it, go inside. She was going to move with Stan to one of these secret prison communities, which also could act as protective custody for people who were threatened by organized crime. Stan said that he was now working with these people in these communities, and Ruth decided that she was going to disappear one last time into weird world to finally have a life where she didn't feel like she was on the run. So the other big revelation here uh, that Pauline learned inside the motel room was that Stan and Ruth had fallen in love and that, in fact, they'd fallen in love years ago. But Stan had now left his wife, Sybil, and was living inside weird world. Now he and Ruth were going to finally be together and they wanted Pauline to know so she wouldn't think they'd simply disappeared. On top of that, Stan and Ruth told Pauline that her dad, Warren, had placed various businesses in his kids' names and that because of his involvement with this shadowy criminal underworld, she and her brother would be implicated in criminal activities and that this fear would be used to control them and bring them into that world. All of these revelations and questions and confusion swirled in Pauline's mind as she got ready to leave the motel. But first, Stan had one more request before she left. At the end of the weekend, um, 
I was getting ready to drive back to St. John. And Stan said, uh, would you allow us to put a tracking beacon on your car? Because with your permission, we would like to assign someone to give you protection. And so you would have somebody keeping an eye on you and it would make it easier for them to know where you are and that you're okay if they could um, have a tracking beacon on your car. And uh, the other thing um, that he asked me is whether I would uh, carry a small, it looked like a little transistor radio. And uh, he said, you can carry this. Um, and, and he showed me certain settings on it and said, if you put the settings this way, you can call for help. If you're ever, if you ever feel as though your life is in danger, you can, you know, do these settings and, and say that you need help and people will come. And then he was very stern and he said, but you must know that if people expose themselves to come to your aid, their lives are at risk. So don't you ever do it unless you really feel like you need that help. (laughs) So I drove away with the beacon on my car and the little transistor in my purse. uh, And, you know, though I, I, I didn't know how real they really were, but they certainly were transmitting a lot of anxiety to me. Uh, You know, I was very aware of that, of them. By the time the weekend in that motel was over, I, I drove home and, and part of me just couldn't believe it. But at the same time, I was terrified And I was, you know, just trying to rethink, you know, thinking about my dad and, uh, you know, all the moves and, yeah, just trying to make it all uh, uh, come together in my head with this new information. But I I was afraid uh, because, again, I kept going back to this could never be true. But then how could it not be true? Because these are, you know incredibly honest, upright people telling me this story. And what have they got to gain by lying? Why would they lie to me? So, you know, I, I increasingly began to feel fearful. Um, and I was told that, you know, um, they were, I was a target now too. As was, as was my brother. So when I got home, um, I, you know, went back to work on the Monday morning and you know, tried to figure, you know, tried to focus on my life and uh, was finding that terribly difficult. And I, you know, felt myself becoming quite paranoid. <laughs> and, you know, one night I had to go to the store and I was afraid to go outside. And we, I had this beautiful lilac hedge around the front of my house. And suddenly it was no longer a beautiful lilac hedge. It was the place that people might be hiding. Uh, and I remember going to the store and walking past this panel van on my street and thinking, oh my God, anybody could be in that van. And maybe it's the good guys who are keeping an eye out on for me, or maybe it's the bad guys who are going to grab me. And, you know, just this descending into a lot of, uh, you know, fearful thinking, uh, worst case scenario thinking, and, and always, always this sort of internal debate going on. How can this be true? But it must be true. But, but what, what would, if I, if I decided it wasn't true, I would have no relationship. I couldn't have a relationship with my mom and Stan who are, you know, essentially my parents. 
and uh, yeah, so I, I I was just so confused and and uh, really terrified. Uh, I stopped wanting to go out to eat, um, you know, because I'd been told that you know people had tried to poison us various times, uh, and I just I lost interest in my life. because I was so preoccupied and, and so worried that my mother was going to be gone any minute. Over the weeks and the months that followed, Pauline would occasionally get together with her mom and Stan, who would share stories about things that were happening inside Weird World. During a road trip to Cape Breton, Stan suddenly pulled out a device in his wallet that was receiving Morse code and started deciphering it. The message said that the task force had taken possession of a ship just offshore and discovered scores of dead and dying people below deck, kidnapped by organized crime figures who were harvesting their organs for the black market. There were stories about warehouses full of women and children being rescued who were destined for the sex trade, and stories about massive caches of drugs found in storage places that were booby-trapped and how dangerous it was to sort of get in there. Um, Endlessly detailed, horrifying stories about the fight against organized crime. Stan also explained the existence of body doubles for some of the people involved with organized crime. The mafia would kidnap people of interest and then put a double back in their place as a a double agent. Or sometimes the good guys would arrest some mafia soldier and put a double in to collect information and, and so on. Stan and Ruth told Pauline that her father, Warren, had a double. Pauline saw some examples of these doubles, including her dad, at the wedding of Pauline's brother, who had not been let in on the family secrets. So we go out to this wedding, my brother's wedding, back in British Columbia. And there's my dad, and I'm just terrified to see him. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, I'm told he could be a double, but um, he looks just like the dad that I remember. And, you know, my mom was found this terribly, terribly uh, difficult. And um, she'd been told that her sister also had a double because her sister had gotten caught up in um, criminal stuff um, and been targeted because of because of my mom's connection. So, you know, seeing these people who we knew and then we're being told that that's not really them. And I, you know, I'm just looking at them so closely thinking, but you have to be those people. How, how could you ever create a double that is such an exact re- replica of the, of the somebody? And, you know, Stan said, and my mother was very freaked out about this. And, and she was demanding answers from him, too. And he was saying, no, you know, there are very specialized plastic surgeries that are done. These people spend months learning to walk and talk and sound and eat and, you know, everything like the person they're going to replace. And he just had an answer for everything uh, about how, how this could be, how this could be. Uh, But it was just so strange and bizarre and, you know, how uh, seemed impossible. All the while, Pauline had been receiving letters, letters written by friends and acquaintances from childhood, 
Letters that added to the mystery and fear that now fully inhabited Pauline's mind. So as soon as I was told the story, I started to receive these letters. Not in the mail. They would be delivered, um, usually by Stan. And they would be from people who were inside, people I had known as a child in Vancouver um, who had been picked up because they worked with my dad in uh, various criminal activities. And they were writing to me to apologize and to say, I'm so, I've, I am so ashamed that I played any role in, you know, the, the terrible things that have happened to your family and the, the way you've had to run and, um, you know, how traumatic life has been. And I, I'm writing to apologize to you. Um, you know, I have quite often, they would go on to say, you know, I have changed. I have, um, you know, I, I would, I regret that life. Uh, I'm trying to make up for it by providing as much information as I can to the these task force people. Um, and sometimes I would get a letter from somebody I'd never known who was just saying, you know, um, how sorry they were. Or, and at some point, I decided I can't uh, live with this stress anymore and I can't live... Um, you know, if my family is disintegrating, um, I, I just don't know how I can sort of be in the world. And so I said, okay, fine. If this is, if there's a, a weird world, if there's this other secret world, fine, I'll go in too. And so Stan said, well, that's fine. We will find you meaningful work in there. Uh, you will have quarters. Uh, to live in. And so then I started getting letters from people saying, there's a little house being built for you. And they would describe it. And, uh, you know, Stan brought me carpet samples. Uh, that's the car, the standard issue carpet, but we knew you liked the blue. And so here's a sample of it. And, um, you know, drawings of this, you know, little, uh, place that I was going to live in. Um, and so this, and, and all these letters from, you know, people in there talking to me about what kind of work I might do eventually. <laughs> um, so the, in, in some ways, that world began to feel, you know, more and more real with all the contacts from all these people who knew things about my childhood and um, about my family and about the circumstances and so on that um, we had lived through. And... I was getting dozens and dozens of these letters, you know, over months. And my mother would also get many of these letters. Um, yeah, so that, you know, that was a, another sort of layer of, of this hidden world. Pauline and her mom moved to Halifax, where they'd live until they received word from Stan that it was safe to move to Weird World, or as they called it, safe to go inside. Months go by. Pauline falls in love, she marries a man to whom she tells the entire story, and who agrees to drop everything in his life and go inside with her. Time passes. Stan always has an excuse about something that's going to hold them up and prevent them, always just a little bit longer, from going inside. The fear and confusion and anxiety build until the day when Pauline comes up with an idea. 
we were just kind of stuck in suspended animation thinking you know thinking we we were about to go inside and start this new life um i remember at the time thinking well if if it happens then i guess it's all real <laughs> and if it doesn't i don't know how long i can stand just waiting around for something that appears to never happen <laughs> well as things went along it just became more and more apparent that this is never going to happen there was always some reason always some excuse of the of something that was going to hold us up and prevent us from going inside and um it it was causing a lot of stress in my marriage uh he had uh, sort of thrown his hands in the air and said oh you know i'm done with this and so then i began to think you know it's very difficult to disprove something that is a secret you know you can the answer can always be well you can't find that out because it's a secret uh so i came up with this plan so i decided that i would wait until the time i knew that stan was visiting my mother and i called uh and and when she answered the phone i said my house has been broken into um and you know what should i do and she said uh hold on i'll talk to our friend meaning stan and i'll call you back and you talk that way on the phone cuz your phone could always be bugged right and so i waited to see what what the answer would be um because i thought if this is not re- real he won't be able to resist making something up in relation to this break in cuz i felt that he that often he took advantage of real things going on in the world and then piggyback this story on top of it and so the phone rang and it was mom and she said yes our friend says they picked up two people at your house who'd broken in they'd been following you for weeks they had photographs of you they were looking for certain things um and in that moment i knew that none of it was true cuz i made up the break in um and uh, which they could never imagine that i would have done and so that that was the moment where i knew the whole thing was a hoax what i can't get over again is that pauline goes her whole life um her life is hijacked by by this series of strange behaviors by right. her mom and and the fact that her mom won't tell her what's behind all of this um for years until Pauline's in her 20s and right. then and then when she does find out the story only gets crazier and to the point where Pauline's feeling paranoid all the time and looking over her shoulder and then at other times not believing it and and then feeling guilty for not believing it and then you know all the way until she decides she has to find out one way or the other and and comes up with that plan which which obviously worked but but now what right <laughs> now what yeah So what do you do with this information, you know? Um Pauline knows that she has to confront Stan about this, about the trap that she'd set 
and, and the, uh, the tear that it has ripped open in the fabric of her life. Uh, but it wasn't a celebratory gotcha moment, like we said. Uh, on the contrary, it was tragically sad. So after I you know, made the discovery that the whole thing was a hoax, first of all, I confronted my mother. And I tried to sort of get her to understand that this wasn't real. And she was horrified, not about the story. She was horrified that I had tested it and that I no longer believed it. And she was afraid that that meant I would take risks and maybe be at some kind of risk myself. So then uh, we went back to this other motel room where, where Stan and Mom were staying. And I confronted Stan. And his reaction was, um, well, something's, you know, something's gone wrong. I don't understand because I got this intelligence that you had been broken into. So obviously there's something going wrong here. It's, you know, maybe there's a, um, a spy in the system or somebody's doing something great. Anyway, and then his reaction after that was just he was sad. He was sad because he knew that this was going to put us on opposite sides of a very big divide. And it was kind of the end of our relationship. And he, he'd always call, you know, told me that I was like his daughter and I felt like he was my dad. And so he was sad because that was over and because he thought that I would maybe be in danger if I was no longer willing to take any precautions. What I couldn't understand was why. Why would anybody do this? Um, and so, you know, I felt strongly that, that my mother believed it and that she wasn't making things up, that she was believing what he was making up. And so the question was, why would he do this to my family? And that was a mystery for a very long time. So there was a bit of a reveal in that last sentence. Um, Pauline says that she thinks Stan was sad because he believed that Pauline would be in danger if she suddenly cast off the protective wing of the task force. So that begs the question, what is the underlying diagnosis behind this entire decades-long hoax? And while you're thinking about that, consider something else that is meta-strange about this story. For a series of events that completely dominated and shaped Pauline's life, she attended six schools by the time she was 11 years old, only to be living in paranoid fear by the time she was in her early and mid-20s. For the entire duration of these events, there's no actual criminality that took place. And I'm not talking about the criminal underworld. I'm talking about Stan and Ruth. Um, none of what they actually did was against the law, but was it deception or was it something else? Around, around that time, I went, I looked up a psychiatrist and went to see him and said, what's going on here? Why, you know, what do you think would explain this situation? And of course he was gobsmacked uh, by the story and, and he said, oh, he thought this was a case of folly adieu where there, you know, a stronger personality has you know, this, this story going on and uh, somebody with a, you know, a weaker kind of personality takes on the story and be begins to believe it. And, and I thought, okay, well, fine, but that doesn't explain why Stan is telling, making this story up, like what's wrong with him that he's doing this. And he really didn't have any answers for me. He didn't really know what that would be. I mean, he was, Stan was clearly not psychotic. 
he was not schizophrenic. He, you know, he was able to sustain, he was very high functioning, you know, very involved in the church, very well respected. Uh, you know, so that, that was the thing I, you know, I was really struggling just to kind of get my feet back under me again and figure out how to now go on with a life that is once again, completely different than I thought it was. Uh, but, and that seemed like such an important part of it was figuring out what the heck happened. Um, and, and I never stopped asking that, but for a very long time, it seemed as though I just would not get an answer and I would just have to suck it up and say, well, this bad thing happened to my family. Um, and now I'm moving on. And I really focused on my career. My, my marriage broke up, not surprisingly, I guess. And I, uh, you know, focused on my career and I've, you know, I've had a great career and I, I have loved the work I've done. And I had these two wonderful kids. So I had many good things happening in my life, watching my kids grow up. And uh, in the back of my mind, this thing always nagged at me. But at some point I thought, well, you know, we're just n not going to get any answers. So uh, years went on and then I started um, writing about what had happened. And uh, one day, I don't know why, just I was uh, Googling and up popped um, a meta an article in a medical journal uh, by a professor at Harvard University. And it was talking about something called delusional disorder which I, I worked for almost 15 years as a medical reporter and I never heard of this. And suddenly I'm reading this article and it perfectly describes the situation. High functioning individual, um, late, later life onset. So people tend to be well-educated and have a life. And then suddenly these crazy delusions take over. Um, and, and, but it's not, it's a delusion that doesn't affect every part of their life. They're able to, if, especially if they're intelligent, they're able to sort of keep that delusion in a little pocket. Um, and as I read this, it, it just really all clicked for me that this must be what was going on. And so I called this, um, professor, this doctor, psychiatrist, and I said, can, you know, can I tell you about this situation? And um, he was actually quite excited because these people don't tend to turn up in they're very hard to study because they don't go looking for help. They don't think there's anything wrong with them. So they don't go looking for help. And for the most part, they can kind of pass as okay, except to the people that they choose to bring into their delusion. So he was fascinated by this case. And he, you know, said, Oh, wow, the, you know, entire worlds developed in that delusion. He must've been very intelligent, which he was, um, and he confirmed, you know, for me that he believed, yes, this was a case of um, persecutory delusional disorder. And then he said to me, by the way, there's this guy who's the world expert on this. I think he's somewhere in your neck of the woods. Well, it turned out that uh, Dr. Alistair Monroe, who literally wrote the book on delusional disorder, lives in my city <laughs> and is Professor Emeritus at the university uh, campus where I work. And uh, so I... Uh, called him and and we met and talked and and he also thought that yes that sounded like um, a case of delusional disorder uh, so at that point for me that it was a huge discovery it and it you know it was a likely answer to this terrible mystery of you know what was it that hijacked our lives and turned them upside down 
Um, and it also allowed me to put down this heavy weight of really hating Stan for what he'd done to us. And, and I, you know, I was able to say to myself, well, the guy was sick. You know, it wasn't that he intended to fool us or hurt us. Uh, he wasn't malevolent. He, you know, he was sick. Um, and so that made a huge difference for me. And I could start to let some of this go. Uh, so our thanks go out to Pauline Dakin for uh, sharing her story uh, with us. You can read about uh, the entire thing with tons of details we didn't dive into here in her book titled Run, Hide, Repeat, A Memoir of a Fugitive Childhood, published by Penguin Random House. Uh, after the book landed in 2018, Pauline says she began receiving scores of emails and contacts from people all over the world who have similar, uh, though maybe not always quite so dramatic, stories that they can't explain. So, hey, yeah, speaking of mental disorders, did you know that there are several disorders related to eating habits? If you check out our website, Ripley's.com, you'll see that I'm not talking about disorders that many people suffer from, like bulimia or anorexia, but instead you can read about eating disorders in which people feel compelled to eat things like hair or wood or glass and human flesh. Believe it or not. So it's time for the or not section, Ryan. Are, are you ready? I am. All right. This is where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe what you hear. For a quarter century, Pauline Dakin lived a life that wasn't what it seemed. She was misled by someone she trusted, but someone who also suffered from a mental illness. Psychology Today tells us there are many misconceptions about those who suffer from mental illness because it's actually much more common than you think. One in five Americans experience a mental health problem in any given year. But the most common misconception is that people are either mentally ill or mentally healthy. Similar to the way a physically healthy person may still experience minor health issues like bad knees or high cholesterol, a mentally healthy person may experience an emotional problem or two, says psychotherapist Amy Morin. Mental health is a continuum and people may fall anywhere on the spectrum. She says that even if you're doing well, there's a good chance you aren't 100% mentally healthy. In fact, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services estimates only about 17% of adults are in a state of optimal mental health, she says. Maybe that means we all have a little work to do on ourselves. Believe it or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. I edit the show. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You don't even have to write anything, really. You can just tap that fifth star and feel the love. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we'll tell the story of how a team of archaeologists used a radical new technology to find a lost world in the jungles of Honduras 
and the price they all paid for doing it. The Lost City of the Monkey God, next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. Cast.